Our passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 16, and we are taking this whole chapter for today, all 36 verses, and we're going to read the passage in a moment, but go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles in front of you and turn to your neighbor and say, help me find Exodus chapter 16. I wonder if any of you have ever experienced getting lost in a hike before and had that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Uh, You know where you started, kind of. Uh, You know where you want to end up, but you can't quite figure out how to get there because you don't know the direction that you're facing. You seem to all turn around. Or perhaps you've had that feeling when you feel lost in life. You're kind of stuck in between. You feel like you know where you've been. You know what you're cut out to do, but you just don't feel like you have the traction to get to where you want to go. There's a word anthropologists and sociologists use to describe that state. It's called liminality. It's a fun word to say. Children, you can say it with me. Liminality. It's from the Latin word limen, which means threshold. So imagine you're standing in the doorway over there. And that's, you're neither in or out. You're kind of in liminal space. The airport would be a place of liminal space. No one lives at the airport. People are always just passing through. And all of us experience liminality to some degree. When you start dating somebody, you're neither single nor married. Rather, you must go through DTRs, engagements, and finally a wedding ceremony before you're married. When a woman becomes pregnant, she enters liminality. She is officially on the threshold of motherhood, and yet she hasn't yet experienced diapers and delivery and discipline. And if you're a Christian, you're presently in a liminal space. You have been saved from your sin, brought into a joyous relationship with Jesus Christ. You have been justified, praise the Lord, and yet you're not yet glorified. Few people enjoy liminality. Liminality is always uncomfortable. It's vague, it's disorienting, vulnerable, and it's ripe for grumbling. In our passage this morning, Israel and their wilderness journey from Egypt to to Canaan, they are in a liminal space. The wilderness is not merely a a place that they're just passing through. It is a place of becoming for them. God takes them through the wilderness that he might teach them and train them. Recall that the main theme of the book of Exodus is that God is, is the God who will make his name known. That is what it's all about. God making himself known. He's made himself known to the Egyptians already. He's done that. And now God uses these wilderness wanderings, so to speak, to make himself known to the Israelites. It is in this liminal space of the wilderness that God tells his people, trust me. Trust me. He's patiently working on their behalf, teaching them 
to trust him. So boys and girls, if you are here this morning and your dad or mom loves to give pop quizzes after Sunday and say, what did you learn today from the the sermon? And you're always like, I'm not quite sure what I remember. You can say, I don't remember everything, but I know the main point. Trust God. Trust God. And you can say, Mommy and Daddy, are you trusting God today? Now, if you were with, were with us the last Lord's Day, you'll remember that earlier in chapter 15, the people of Israel moved on from the banks of the Red Sea into the wilderness. They come to a place called Mara, which means bitter, because the water at that place was bitter. It was undrinkable. And what we begin to see is this pattern emerging in the life of Israel. They grumble and complain. They're discontent. That's really Israel's national pastime. They are whiners. The whining is their besetting sin. They grumbled at Moses when they felt trapped at the Red Sea. They grumbled at Mara when there was no water to drink. And even when God made the water sweet, even when he brings them to a place, as we saw last week, to the place of Elim, where there's springs that are bound for every tribe of Israel. Israel grumbles. It isn't much longer before Israel grumbles again. And as we look into God's word this morning in Exodus 16, our passage can be divided into two major headings. A diagnosis of discontentment and a treatment of trust. A diagnosis of discontentment and a treatment of trust. So first we see this diagnosis of discontentment. Let's take a look at these opening verses in chapter 16. Follow along as I read it to you. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, that evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Israel, Israel is heading south towards Mount Sinai. They leave one wilderness, Shur, S-H-U-R, into this wilderness of sin. Now, the word there for sin is not about missing the mark. It's not about wickedness. 
it would seem kind of foolish to be like, hey, ahead is the wilderness of sin. Let's go there. Rather, the word sin is how the Hebrew word kind of sounds. It's likely the cognate of the word Sinai because they're in the region of Sinai. And there, buying and trading food would be very difficult. There's no Costco to stock up on their goods. There's no $1.50 hot dogs for them to enjoy. A month after leaving Egypt, their food rations are running low. And we know it's been a month in the wilderness because here it tells us, we're given this timestamp in verse 1, that it's the 15th day of the second month. And in Numbers 33, it tells us Israel left Egypt on the 15th day of the first month. So we know one month has passed for the nation of Israel. And they start grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And this murmuring against them is no isolated affair. It's massive. Earlier in chapter 15, verse 24, when they grumbled at Mara, the people grumbled, but here, it's just, there in 1524, it was just the people grumbled. But here in verse 2 of chapter 16, it says the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Grumbling has had that effect. And it continues to have that effect, doesn't it? Grumbling has this kind of wildfire-like way of spreading where it captures all the people, this whole congregation by an attitude of discontent. And they complain about their meal plan. They look back upon their lives in Egypt wistfully and this is the first of three things we see in this diagnosis of discontentment. That first, grumbling distorts the past. Grumbling distorts the past. Look at verse 3. Israel said, would that we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Of the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. They're saying, remember Egypt? Oh, we had that all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue back there. We had those bottomless breadsticks from Olive Garden when we were back in Egypt. Remember when we sat by the campfire and Paul played the fiddle? And, oh, remember Egypt. This is what grumblers do. They distort the past. They exaggerate the advantages of their former situation. Remember the good old days. In truth, it's doubtful whether Pharaoh fed them all the meat they could eat. And even if if he did, it was only so that they could work harder. In fact, when they were in Egypt in Exodus 2, 23, this is what the Bible records, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cried for rescue from slavery, and that cry goes up to God. Now they say, oh, if only we'd been killed in Egypt. You don't know whether to laugh or cry when you come to that, when you, when you read that. God has provided for their salvation. God has allowed them to plunder the Egyptians with gold and silver as they were leaving Egypt. God gave them water at Marah and Elim. And now, oh, I wish I was dead. God doesn't care. He doesn't love us. Wish he had struck us down with those plagues. Philip Bryken in his commentary writes, Patrick Henry's famous words were, give me liberty or give me death. The Israelites said exactly the opposite. Give us bondage or give us death. Liminal spaces are hard, aren't they? And sometimes we can look at where we were in the past 
with rose-colored glasses, with nostalgia. You know, for some reason, uh, for most of my life, I've always thought that the 1940s was a great time to live. <laughs> I don't know why I think that. You know, it's, in my mind, it's the, the era in which swimming suits were still modest and ice cream was still vanilla and suits were tailored and men were courageous and gave their lives for their country. But really, it was a horrible time of war. People were economically destitute. Segregation was a law. And we do it now. Oh, remember when we were in preschool? Oh, those were the days. No homework. Remember when we were in college? Oh, those were the days. Remember when you were single? Remember when you had no children? Remember when you had all your children before they left the house? Remember when America was like this? Those were the days. And it's not that we don't have anything to learn from the past, but the good old days weren't always so good. Second, in this diagnosis of discontentment, we learn that grumbling not only distorts the past, but it distorts the present. We see that, don't we? Look at verse, look at verse three again. Look at the complaint against Moses and Aaron. You brought us out here in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They impute the worst sort of motives to Moses and Aaron. Moses, the one who stretched out his hand and parted the Red Sea so that you could walk through. Moses, who stretched out his hand and threw a log in the water to make it sweet. Moses, who stretched out his hand during the plagues and who came on the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. And now they say, we charge you for attempted murder. What's more, the Israelites had nothing to complain about. Philip Riken makes this point. He says, they were not running out of food. It simply wasn't true. In the next chapter, they talk about needing water for their livestock. Obviously, they still had the flocks and herds that they had brought out of Egypt. They could drink milk and make cheese. If necessary, they could even eat meat. So they were not starving. Psalm 78 provides a commentary for us about this incident. It says... It speaks of the food they craved, not the food they needed. The Israelites confused what they wanted with what they needed. And isn't that often the source of our discontentment? Thinking that our greeds are really our needs? Exaggeration can be a serious sin by which we slander others and deceive ourselves. We often do this without realizing it, especially when things aren't going the way we think they ought to go. We, we don't set out to lie, but we know how to say things just the right way to include the right information and exclude some other information to somehow make it seem like, my dad never. Uh, my wife always does this. Or my boss is always like, my life is forever and then we grumble, distort, and grumble some more. Grumbling distorts the past and the present. Lastly, grumbling dishonors God. The people, as the modern day parlance would have it, they're hangry. 
They direct their discontent at Moses and Aaron, but who are they ultimately grumbling against? Verses 7 and 8. God. Moses and Aaron are something that I perhaps need to learn a little bit is when people are grumbling against me and just say, they kind of said, no skin off my back, you're just grumbling against God. You see, at root, a complaining spirit indicates that something is not right with your relationship with God. Like I said last week, there is room for groaning, lamentation, disappointment, even disagreement with God. But I think if we take a look at our complaints, the ones that we direct towards our parents and our pastors, our our husbands and our spouses, our our spouses and our children, our colleagues, we feel like who aren't pulling their weight in the workplace, our bosses who are basically telling us to do so much but not giving giving us enough resources. Perhaps we're discontent with our finances or health. In those moments, I dare say, we are often grumbling against God. Because God is sovereign over all of it. Isn't he? He gave you your boss. And he gave you your spouse. He put you here in the Bay Area. And each is a genuine challenge. Each is a test. And each will tempt us to grumble in that liminal space. And for Israel and for us, the root is unbelief. They simply do not believe God will provide for them. And we do not believe that God will provide for us. Beloved, here you have, we must ask ourselves, and I say beloved intentionally, but we must ask ourselves if there's been a creeping unbelief slipping into our hearts causing us to grumble, generating fear, fueling discontent? Where in your life are there persistent whispered insinuations, God is not enough? Brother and sister, let me be straightforward with you. Uh, We must repent of our unbelief. Grumbling is forgetful. It ignores all God's past faithfulness. It's blind. It it refuses to see a good God behind a hard providence. And it's absurd, isn't it? Did the Israelites really think that we're going to be better off in Egypt? We see in these early verses of chapter 15 a diagnosis of discontentment. It distorts the past and the present. It dishonors God. So what do we do about it? How do we change God, in the remaining verses, provides this treatment of trust. That's our second major heading. Notice God's response to Israel. There's not a word of recrimination, not one word. And instead, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rain bread. Our God reigns, doesn't he? And the wording here is striking when read against the plague narratives, isn't it? In Egypt, God had rained hail, but here he rains bread. In Egypt, locusts came up and covered the ground, devouring all the produce. But now, God says in verse 13, meat in the form of quail comes up and covers the ground. 
God's intention is very clear in verse 12. I'm providing meat this one night and bread every day. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God is making himself known to Israel through this trial, through this testing, teaching them to trust that he will provide. And this treatment of trust shows up in two different ways. First, God teaches the people to trust him daily. Look at verse 9. Follow along with me. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay, down, lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. In these verses, that very evening, God provides quail for them, doesn't he? Uh, it's an astonishing provision. It's enough to feed a multitude of millions. It comes on time, at the right place, in the right quantity, because God is no Scrooge. He is not miserly. He does not hoard. But the focus of our passage really is this manna, isn't it? In verse 15, the people see it and they ask, what is it? And you might have a little footnote there in your ESV where it says, it is manna. It's because in the Hebrew, to ask, what is it, sounds like the word manna. Manhu is like, what is it? So whenever you see the word manna, it's basically the word, it's basically a question. What is it? They're eating a whatchamacallit. That's what they're eating. This is something that Israelites have never experienced before. They're mystified by it. And they're instructed to take an omer, which is about two liters, if you see your, uh, your, your footnotes there. And it's a miraculous provision. Verse 31, later, it tells us that it is like coriander seed, which is white, and the taste of it like wafers made with honey. Now, the children and I were trying to imagine what this manna looked like last night. Uh, one thought of it was like frosted cereal, like frosted flakes. I was like, oh, that does sound good. I told them I pictured it as divine donuts. There certainly are a lot of elaborate theories from commentators as to what this manna really is. Uh, some speculate it's some sort of liquid 
excretion from plant lice, which is kind of gross. And others say it is lichen, uh, L-I-C-H-E-N, essentially fungus and alga uh, that grow on rocks, which again would be kind of gross. But none of those seem like good answers, do they? It must be supernatural because this man in verse uh, 23 can be boiled and it can be baked. It appears only when Moses says it will. It goes on appearing for when we see later on in verse 35 that it goes on for the next 40 years for them. There's enough to feed millions. You get it twice as much on the sixth day, but you get none of it on the seventh day. It just doesn't appear. This surely is a miracle from God. And God commands Israel to gather it every day, measure it out with an omer. And guess what? It will always be enough. On the whole, it's in our natures to be provident, to be wise. We want to lay up today what we will need tomorrow. Save something for a rainy day. The scripture actually commends this in Proverbs. But when it comes to man and God says, no, I'm not giving you what you need each day. Because I'm not giving you what you need for tomorrow. I'm giving you what you need today, sufficient for the day. If you try to hoard it, it will only breed worms and stink. Verse 20 tells us that some of them failed the test. But God is training them in this liminal space. Not only am I a God that provides, I'm a God that provides daily. That's what he's saying. Today will be enough. Tomorrow will be enough. Every day, every night, the Israelites were were to go to sleep with an empty pantry. And trust in the morning that God would fill it. Looking back on this event, Moses writes in Deuteronomy 8.3, he says, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you think Jesus had his mind on his manna and manna on his mind when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, when you pray, you pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Or what about when Jesus says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Your heavenly Father knows that you need such things. Right now, anxiety seems to be pretty high. You're watching the volatility of the stock market. You're wondering what's next. You look at the economy. You think about inflation. You look at the gas prices. And it's a daily reminder that it's hard. And you're wondering if you'll ever own a home in the Bay Area. We wonder what the fallout of Roe being overturned will be. We wonder when COVID, you know, Omicron, Pyro, Sigma Tau, Upsilon Phi, you know, keep going and going and going. Monkeypox, check, right? The lesson isn't that we should be brazen or that we shouldn't be wise stewards. That's not the lesson. But none of our strategies ought to be motivations for you to be financially independent of God or physically independent of the provision of God. Some of us want the whole blueprint of God's grace ahead of time because we don't really trust that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and his mercies are new what? Say it with me. Every morning. Every morning. 
Beloved, enjoy what God has given you. Give thanks for what you have. He's given you bread and mercy for the day and tomorrow. Whatever trials and surprises may come, he'll give you manna for that day. Trust God daily. Second, in this treatment of trust, we're not only to trust God daily, but to trust God enough to rest. Trust God enough to rest. Look at verses 22 to the end. And I'll read it to you, and please follow along. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long? Will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called his name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which, with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept the place of Israel, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of an ephah. Now Moses provides this curious command here in this section about a Sabbath. Earlier in chapter five, in verse 5, God gave a command to his people, every day there's going to be enough manna for you. And then on the sixth day, gather twice as much. Because on the seventh day, there'll be nothing. Two omers full. Now, why does God do that? Because the seventh day is the Sabbath. It is to be a day of solemn rest, it says. It's to be a holy Sabbath to the Lord, meaning set apart, unique, special. All the extra manna gathered on the sixth day will not rot overnight by God's hand. What's more, on the Sabbath, there will be nothing there. You see, it's no longer about just providing something for them to eat anymore, is it? God is, people, God is teaching his people to trust him enough to rest. How unlike, how, what, what a different master God is, isn't he? Pharaoh, work every day. Not so with God. He says, I'm going to make it so that you will rest. I want you to rest. That's what the word Sabbath means. It means to cease or desist. There's a lot to unpack regarding the Sabbath. I mean, people have all sorts of questions about it. Is it applicable today? Has it gone away? Is it, you know, uh, is, is it Sunday? Is, it, is the Sabbath now the Christian Sunday? Well, I'm not going to answer any of those questions. But hopefully, if we get to 
Lord willing, if we get to Exodus 20, I'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about it. But what you need to understand for now is that Sabbath is not simply a law. It is rooted in God's creation because God rested on the seventh day. And in his wisdom, in his graciousness, he calls people to rest. Take a break. God has made mankind to rest from their work, not just to do nothing, but to have a day of refocused service toward the holy, towards God. And God says, do you trust me enough to rest? you high-achieving people. Some of us have FOMO. We want to be involved in everything. We want to pack our whole calendars. We, we, make every, we try to make it to every invitation. And some of us, you know, we, we have homework. And some of us work from home. It seems like the same thing. And it's easy to run ourselves as close to the margin as possible. You know, perhaps on a Sunday you think, oh, Sunday, I'm there. I'll get a little bit of church, nine till... 10, 15, and the rest of the day, I'm going to pursue more. More studying, more work, more fun, more me time. Sundays are not a time for you to get ahead and work or to catch up with your work. God ordains that one day in seven be restful for your good, for your health. We should do things that refresh us for his service, intellectually, physically, spiritually, What's more, it's called a holy day, meaning it is, only, it is a time, certainly you can take a nap if you've been working all week, if you've been on your feet all week. And certainly you can go ride a bike if, you, you know, if you've been at your desk all week. But it's more than that. It can include those things. It's meant to be a day of fellowship with God and with his people. Do you trust God enough to stop and rest? Psalm, uh, Psalm 81.10 says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The liminal space of the wilderness was not a comfortable season for Israel. In fact, it was very painful. But it was a, such a place of becoming for them. Such a place of formation that in verses 31 through 36, God commands the people to take an omer of the manna to be kept throughout their generations. Every time they look at this manna that is continually there, in that jar, they were to remember, God provides daily. And God provides enough for us to rest. Hebrews 9.4 tells us that it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant in a golden urn along with Aaron's staff and a copy of the law. This was what God wanted his people to learn, to trust him, because that's their greatest need. That was their greatest need. It was him. While the jar of manna is now lost, I can't bring it up, no one can bring it up for us to see and observe and remember We need God. But its ultimate meaning was fulfilled and found when Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is what bread is for. It's to point to me. I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The real manna we need is Jesus himself. The all, all, as pressing as our present needs are, our eternal needs are even greater. Our needs for salvation is more pressing, more urgent. Our need for Christ is even more. Daily bread wards off physical death for a time, but our bigger problem is an eternal death. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. God is calling you to trust him, to trust in his son. To be freed from eternal punishment, freed from anxiety, freed to rest in Christ alone. A rest that cannot be experienced in this world. And God created us to find our life in him. But we've all rebelled against him. And because God is good, he promises to punish all sin. Yet in his mercy and grace, he sent his son from heaven to die on the cross and take the punishment of sin so that he can be our bread from heaven. Stop seeking what is perishable. He is calling each of you to turn from sin, to repent and believe in him. And what you need more and food to eat is the food Jesus gives of himself so you would live and never die. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful once again for how your word penetrates and divides and reveals to us our hearts. And we ask that you would cause us to see our grumbling and that we would run to its correct treatment which is at the foot of the cross to trust in you. Guide us, O great Jehovah. We are pilgrims through this barren land. Give us the bread of heaven. Feed us till we want no more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we have the pleasure of witnessing the baptism of our sister Christine Ouyang. Our statement of faith says that we believe Christian baptism by immersion is a solemn and beautiful emblem of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior and his union with him in death to sin and resurrection to new life. It is also a sign of fellowship and identification with the visible church of Christ. Now, as a church, it's, we've kind of begun a little bit of a tradition here of singing There is a Fountain at our baptisms. So let's go ahead and sing two verses together now as we prepare for uh, the baptismal and of There is a Fountain. And we'll sing one more verse at the clo- at, to close out our Sunday worship after the baptism. Let's go ahead and sing one.